My text today is taken from 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. We continue our series through 1 John today, and we come to the fourth chapter, and this section is, is about six verses that pertain to the same theme here, and I will not be covering the entire six verses this Lord's Day, so there will be other sermons on this particular topic, but I do want to address that which we find in verse 1 today of 1 John chapter 4. Wherever you go today in the professing Christian community, you are bound to be barraged with many voices clamoring to be heard, proclaiming that this is the right church for you to attend, or this spiritual experience will revolutionize your life. Or this teaching proceeds from the Holy Spirit. Listen to it. We've all been there. With all the transitions that we have made, we have heard this time and time again, and we have probably uttered it ourselves many, many times. Has there ever been, dear ones, one book that man has used to justify so many different and contradicting views than the Bible, God's own holy word. I doubt it. That book which testifies of itself, that it is the inspired revelation of God, that it is the word of truth, that it is the sure and certain word of prophecy. That word has been yanked continuously out of context. That word has been continuously misinterpreted, misapplied, misconstrued by all kinds of teachers, whether wittingly or unwittingly. And we ourselves have been guilty of the same sins. And we do not claim doctrinal perfection even now. And so we must be very careful as we address these issues that we look to ourselves as well. That we not have an arrogant or a proud type of intellectual or spiritual attitude as we think about these matters so important before us today. The sin of misapplying and misinterpreting the word and promoting that which is contrary to the word happens not simply because of our finite ignorance, but it also happens because of our sinful desire to make God's word say what we want it to say. To make the word of the Lord more comfortable to our thinking to make God's Word conform to our lifestyle. This is the sin that even is more heinous than our 
unwitting ignorance of the truth. It's no secret, dear ones, why it is that the enemy of our soul would seek to distort the truth to such a degree. He doesn't want you to believe it. It's as simple as that. He's the father of lies. The scripture tells us in John 8, 44, Jesus says, Ye are of your father, the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. Therefore, think about it for just a moment. The more variety that he offers by way of views out there, distorting the truth, kind of like a huge, if we could explain it this way, a huge buffet or smorgasbord of conflicting views spread out before you. The more views that he can offer, the more difficult the decision becomes at times for Christians. For other people as they consider what is true. The more doubt that seems to appear in our minds because of the conflicting views that are out there. And the more that he misleads even the people of God, even sincere Christians, the more that he's able to do that by various false truth or false doctrines. The more that he's able to do so, even more difficult it becomes to Christians because they begin to look at Why or how could so many Christians be wrong? How could so many err in this way? I think we've all had the experience as children and as adults of having to make a decision. Think of, of when you were a child. All of those various flavors of ice cream. Take your children to the ice cream parlor and you say, pick, pick a flavor. And if there are 30 flavors there, they're probably going to take nearly 30 minutes deciding which flavor they want. But give them a choice between two and the decision is going to be made much quicker. Or think as uh, adults. You lay 10 or 20 different models of homes as you're beginning to look at a home. And the decision becomes more and increasingly difficult. Well, it's no different when many, many views are presented to you. And so this is the strategy, I believe, of the enemy in offering so many conflicting views with regard to what God's word says. I wonder, dear one, have you ever felt a little confused at times like myself and perhaps even discouraged to such an extent that you either almost despaired of ever knowing what God himself was truly saying in his word, or became almost indifferent to the truth, thinking to yourself, what difference does it really matter or make what I believe so long as I believe in Christ? What difference does it make? You see, that's the effect that all of the multiformity, the pluralism, in the church and in this nation. That's the effect it has upon a person. It causes them to become indifferent to the truth. 
and ultimately leads to a kind of skepticism that really no one can know the truth. That it's really not knowable. That you can never be really sure about what God is saying in his word. And that's the practical effect of it. I was just talking with someone this past week who was relating to me concerning someone that they used to worship with in the church that they attended. And when you consider the various churches that are out there today, this would probably certainly be way up in the upper 50% of churches. And yet, she, re- she related to me how a friend said, well, that's what I like so much about this church. You can believe whatever you want to believe about the Sabbath. That's what she appreciated about it, that she could believe whatever she wanted to believe about the Sabbath. That's what she was getting from the pulpit because there were several views that were presented of how within that within that church, within that denomination, you could look at the Sabbath. Well, of course, that's going to be the attitude. It's going to drive people to indifference and eventually to skepticism. And you see, dear ones, that's exactly what a faithful confession of faith or creed that is true to the Scriptures is intended to eliminate. Pluralism and a unity in error. It's intended to eliminate those things. Although God does not proclaim that we can have an infallible understanding of all of the Scripture, the Scripture yet is God's revealed will. And He revealed it not in order for us to remain completely ignorant of the truth. He didn't reveal it to us so that we would never understand what God wants us to do in various circumstances or what He wants us to believe, He revealed it to us so that we would know Him, so that we would understand His will. Ephesians 5.17 says, Wherefore be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. Don't be foolish, don't be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And so we ought to pursue that. Understand what God's will is. As we look at the sermon today, as I have very often done, I do want to give you some preliminary remarks about the context. And then we will proceed to 1 John 4.1 in particular. First of all, God obviously knows that repetition is beneficial to our growth and to our faith. For he inspires the Apostle John in this letter of 1 John to repeat again and again the same three tests by which a Christian may be assured that he knows the Lord. And so, one of these ways of helping people to really understand the truth the Lord is saying through this repetition is you need to hear it again and again. That's a good point to remember as you train your children. Your children continue to need to, need to hear the truth and the same truths over and over and over again. 
may be applied in different ways, but they need to be hearing that repeated truth of the Lord. And so do you, as the word is preached to you. John does exactly this in this epistle. And these three tests, again, let me summarize for you. First, do you love and pursue holiness in your life? That's the first test that John offers. Do you love and pursue holiness in your life? That is, do you consider conformity to the image of Jesus Christ something beautiful? Is that what you're striving for? To be conformed to Christ's image? The second test, do you love the brethren? That is, do you love Christians? Not because of what you can get out of them, not because of what they do for you, but do you love them simply because they are Christians? Simply because they are related to the Lord Jesus Christ, because the image of God has been recreated in them. Because they profess the same Lord and because they have the same Spirit and because they love the same Father. In other words, do you love them because they are your brethren? And thirdly, the third test that John offers is, do you love the truth? That is, does what God declares that you are to believe concerning your duty to Him and to your fellow man, does it really matter to you? Do you earnestly seek to know His truth? Are you indifferent to it? Or is the truth of God more important to you than all of life? Those are the three tests that the Lord gives through the Apostle John as to looking at our lives, examining our own lives. And I realize that none of us are in our process of sanctification, none of us are at that point of perfection in any of these areas. We are all growing, but these tests will be to varying degrees true in the life of every Christian. One cannot be a Christian and fail absolutely each of these tests. There will be evidence in some way or another, to varying degrees, there will be evidence of that in their lives. And the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, does take us back to these tests to see. Now, we may not see the problem that we may have in our own life. We may look at those and we may say, I don't think that I see what I should see there. And we may not be content. But that does not mean that, mean that there is no evidence there. It just means we need to really focus and stir up the grace of God in our lives in these areas. The second thing concerning the preliminary remarks <clears throat> that I would make is that remember these tests are not given to us in order to make us righteous before God. We could never accomplish our own righteousness in a million years. It is the work of the Spirit of God in our lives to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. And furthermore, even those works which are wrought by the Spirit of God in our lives 
because they are wrought by yet sinners, are never perfect in and of themselves, so that we could offer them to God as a basis for our justification, for our acceptance before God. And so we must never ever trust in our own righteousness as the reason why God has declared us righteous. Philippians 3.9, the Apostle Paul says that it's his desire to be found in Christ, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, not having that kind of righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith in Christ. A righteousness which is alien to me, foreign to me, and received from Christ through faith in Him. So you see, these tests, dear ones, are simply the fruit that is observable to varying degrees in the life of every Christian. Thirdly, this is now the second time that John brings to our attention this test of loving and receiving the truth. He had previously brought this to our attention in 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 through 27. And just as he mentions in 1 John 2.19, and I quote from 1 John 2.19, They went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. Just as John mentions in that particular verse, so likewise he brings to the attention of the Believers to whom he's writing in this portion in 1 John chapter 4. That we are given the word of truth. We are given the word of truth to love it and receive it. Not to ignore it and neglect it. And it is a test that we can look to in our own lives. The next point I'd make very quickly with regard to preliminary remarks is this. As we now begin to look more closely at our text in 1 John chapter 4, it is important to see the connection that these verses in 1 John chapter 4 have with the last sentence in chapter 3. And I read the last sentence in chapter 3 and it says, and hereby we know that he abideth in us by the Spirit which he hath given us. In other words, John asks, how do we know that God abides in us? By the Spirit which he has given us. That's how we know God abides in us. By his Spirit, his presence, his inward testimony in our lives, the work of the Holy Spirit, accomplishing those fruits of the Spirit in our lives. That's the evidence that God has made us aware of. That He lives and abides in these human temples. Now, I would simply make one comment here as we consider this, that it is God who lives and abides within us. You know, God has given to the Christian not only all material and all spiritual blessings, but think about this for a moment. The most important blessing that God has given to us 
is himself. He wasn't simply content to give us things, as it were, blessings and gifts. He was not satisfied until he gave himself. He gave his son for us. He gives us his spirit to live and abide within us. You see, it's all too common, I think, for we busy husbands, if I were to make an analogy, to think we can possibly buy our wife's satisfaction when we're especially busy by giving her, say, the credit card to go and purchase something new. But listen, gentlemen, it is not things that your wife wants. It's you. A new pair of shoes will not replace the love and affection she desires for spending time with you. In fact, there is not a better way to say I love you than to want to be with and to enjoy the one loved. And the Lord God Himself didn't simply give us gifts and blessings. He gave us Himself. And every Lord's Day, that is why we are to sanctify it, because it is special time of communion and fellowship and worship with the living God. God says, I want this time with you. How much more could God express His love to us, that He delights in us, that He loves us, than He wants to spend time with us in this way? And the last preliminary remark that I would make is this. What follows in our text in 1 John chapter 4, after mentioning the gift of the Spirit, after mentioning that the evidence that we know that God dwells within us is the Spirit that He has given to us, He goes on to mention four evidences that the Spirit of God does live and abide within us. And we'll consider the first one this Lord's Day and carry on next Lord's Day. The question then that may be posed as we look at this section of 1 John chapter 4 is this, what fruit may we expect to see in our lives if the Spirit of God dwells therein? Not only will He produce holiness and love for the brethren in our lives, John says, but since He is the Spirit of truth, He will also produce in our lives an earnest love for His truth, for His Word. So you see, dear ones, complacency, indifference, and apathy to the truth of God have no place in the life of a Christian. In the following verses in 1 John chapter 4, 1 through 6, give to us the ways in which that love for the truth will be evidenced by the Christian. And so how do you love? How do you know you love God's truth? Well, the very first evidence, and this is the one we'll cover today, how do you know you love God's truth? First one is because you test teachers and their message. Because you examine teachers and what they say. First John chapter 4, verse 1, the Apostle says, 
Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Dear ones, if you love the truth, the Apostle John says, you'll be one who tests and evaluates, examines those who profess to be teachers of the word. You will not blindly follow a teacher simply because he has a degree behind his name or because he has a dynamic personality or has extraordinary communication skills or has a winsome personality or even appears to be a very saintly man. You'll not listen without careful scrutiny and testing what he says as well. There's certainly nothing wrong with any of these qualities that I've just mentioned. As long as they accompany the ministry of a teacher who loves the truth, who pursues the truth, who defends the truth, and is willing to lay down, yes, even his life for the truth. You see, dear ones, all the other qualities that make a teacher more effective in proclaiming the Word of God are only aids to communication. But without the truth, they can be used just as effectively in communicating error. And so, as Christians, you know you love the truth. You know you love God's law. You know you love the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ when you care enough to examine the teachers and their message by the infallible rule of God's holy word. The Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 1, verses 9, I'm I'm sorry, sections 9 and 10. Make this very clear where we are taught the infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any Scripture, which is not manifold but one, it must be searched and known by other places that speak more clearly. The supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined and all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men and private spirits are to be examined and in whose sentence we are to rest can be no other but the Holy Spirit speaking in the scripture. Therein we stand. And we will not budge the Holy Spirit speaking in the scripture. As we look at this first verse, John gives two commands. John gives two commands in chapter four, verse one. The very first command is this. Believe not every spirit. Now, this is a command. It's an imperative 
It's not an option to the Christian. It is our obligation, we are bound, not to believe every spirit. And when it uses the word spirit there, we can understand from that every teacher claiming to speak by the Spirit of God. Believe not every teacher who claims to speak in the name of Christ or by the Spirit of God. Jesus said the same thing. Many will come to me in that last day and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we do many wondrous miracles in your name? Didn't we do all of these things? And Jesus will look at them and say, Depart from me, ye workers of iniquity. I never knew you. He doesn't say, I knew you at one time, but now I don't know you. I never knew you. You were never one of my own. You may have been associated with a church. You may have been a minister. You may have been an elder. Or you may have sat faithfully in the church for many years. And with all of the gifts that you say you have, and even doing so in my name, I never knew you. Very sobering words from the Lord himself. You see, here's a passage in 1 John 4.1 that plainly teaches that it is a sin to be gullible. A sin to be gullible in swallowing everything you hear from one simply because he is a minister. And I include myself in that category. You are sinning if you simply accept any or everything that I say simply because I declare it to be so. If you are not scrutinizing, if you are not examining, if you are not testing what comes from this pulpit, you are sinning according to this passage. You see, even the Bereans are commended by the Lord in Acts chapter 17 because when the apostles brought the truth to them, they were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica because they searched the scriptures to know that what the apostles were saying was in agreement and conformable to the revelation and the truth of God. They searched the scriptures to find out if these things were so. And they were commended for doing so. And these were the apostles of Jesus Christ. And even with them, they checked out what they were saying. How much more so ministers like myself, ministers who serve in other churches, elders, must continuously, for my well-being, not only for the sake of the gospel, not only for the sake of the truth, but for my well-being, so I do not veer off and go astray in what I am proclaiming or believing. You should love me enough to come to me and to declare to me the truth if I go astray. Otherwise, I would say, you do not love me. You do not really care for me. If you allow me to go off in error and say nothing to me. The only reason, dear ones, you should desire to follow me as your pastor is because I follow Christ. 
or insofar as I follow Jesus Christ. The only reason, dear ones, you should desire to receive my words that I preach and proclaim to you this day is because they are the words of Christ and conformable and agreeable to His Holy Word. You see, dear ones, God would would have Christians to avoid two extremes in this regard as you consider the utterances of teachers throughout history. The first extreme that the Lord would want you to avoid is this, an implicit faith in the testimony of the martyrs and of the saints who contended for the faith, an implicit faith in the decrees of assemblies wherein were gathered godly and learned men, an implicit faith in the confessions and creeds of faithful churches. God does not want you to have an implicit faith. It is unbiblical. It is ungodly. An implicit faith, dear ones, is that which simply believes matters of faith to be true. Not because the conscience has been satisfied from the Word of God, but rather because a mere human authority teaches it to be true and you believe it simply upon that human authority, upon the basis of that human authority. See, this is the teaching of Rome. Rome teaches you believe our doctrine and our faith because we say so. Because we believe God teaches we are infallible in all of our declarations concerning the faith. That's implicit faith. And it's a heinous and grievous sin. You see, such an implicit faith, dear ones, destroys true liberty of conscience, true Christian liberty. God has never given to us freedom and liberty to believe what is contrary to His Word. He has never given us a liberty to violate His moral law, His commandments. There is no civil right in the world that can be granted to us to violate the Word of God. Our conscience before God is free from all human commandments human doctrines contrary to or beside the Word of God in worship. You see, such an implicit faith actually acknowledges that God is not the Lord of the conscience, but man is the Lord of the conscience. Whereas the Lord teaches through His Apostle in 2 Corinthians 1.24, even an Apostle says this, Not for that we have dominion over your faith, but are helpers of your joy. For by faith, that is faith in God, you stand. Not faith in us. Not faith in my teaching. Not faith in what I command. But faith in the commandments of God. Faith in the truth of God. Therein will your conscience find satisfaction and peace. And only there, in the truth of God. And so in this regard, dear ones, we must carefully hear what our confession of faith states concerning this extreme of implicit faith. 
in chapter 31, section 4. All synods or councils since the apostolic or the apostles' times, whether general or particular, may err. And many have erred, therefore they are not to be made the rule, the rule of faith or practice, but to be used as an help in both faith and practice. That is why such standards in our church, as the Westminster Confession, the Catechisms, the Directory for Public Worship, the Form of Government, the Solemn League and Covenant, the National Covenant, are other standards. These we declare to be subordinate standards. Subordinate standards. Not meaning they have no authority in the life of the church, but meaning they have a subordinate authority to that of the Word of God. Meaning that they have, apart from being agreeable to the Word of God, they do not have authority to bind men's consciences. But insofar as they are agreeable and conformable to the Word of God, it therefore is God in His own Word that is speaking to us in these areas, and we must submit our conscience. Even if it is in the words of men, but it is the truth of God that is being explained in the words of men that is to be submitted to. You don't find the word Trinity in the, in the Scriptures. And yet, as we articulate what the Trinity is, you are to submit your conscience to that as being agreeable to the Word of God. That is a biblical doctrine. You see, none of our subordinate standards and none of the practices or teachings of this church can in and of themselves bind the conscience unless, again, and I keep repeating this because I don't want you to miss the point, unless they accurately reflect what God declares in His Word. And when that is true, then you are obligated to obey you're obligated to obey it because it is not ultimately our word. It is his word that binds you. It is his doctrine and his teaching that binds you. The second extreme to avoid as you consider the utterances of men in history is that of anti-credalism. That is, that no faithful teacher of the church in history, no faithful assembly of learned and godly divines, no faithful confession or creed of faithful churches is to be used as an aid to understanding the word of God, faith or practice. This position, in essence, dear ones, attacks the gracious gifts of Christ to his church in the form of faithful pastors and teachers. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 14, listen to what the Lord says about this gift to his church. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists, which are extraordinary gifts which God gives to his church. But the 
gifts that we see ordinarily throughout history are the next two, and some pastors and teachers. For the perfecting of the saints. This is why he has given these gifts. For the perfecting of the saints. For the work of the ministry. For the edifying of the body of Christ. Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, and to a perfect man, and to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Notice, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro, and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they, they lie in wait to deceive. The very purpose that God has given to us Pastors and teachers as ordinary gifts is in order that we would come, all of us come to the unity of the faith and to the measure of the stature of fullness of Christ, to a perfect man, not being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. You see, whereas the first extreme that of implicit faith declares that the decrees of the church must be received as always infallible, incapable of error. The second extreme is just as erroneous for it proceeds on the false assumption that learned and godly pastors and teachers, although capable of making errors, are incapable of making any faithful decisions that are agreeable to the Word of God. The Word of God never declares that. Otherwise, again, why would the Word of God have given pastors, why would the Lord Jesus Christ have given pastors and teachers to the church? You see, the text before us in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1 this text does not say, believe no spirit, believe no teacher coming in the name of the Holy Spirit. What does it say? It says, believe not every spirit. Make a distinction, discern, evaluate between the spirits, the teachers who come to you. It does not forbid or discourage in any way the church from using confessional statements written by man that may be used to defend the truth or to combat error. For we actually have in the next two verses, in chapter 4, 1 John, verses 2 and 3, we actually have the example of such confessional statements concerning the person of Christ. That Christ has come in the flesh. Every spirit, this is a true spirit, that confesses that Christ has come in the flesh. Everyone that doesn't confess that, don't believe him. There's a confessional statement. And we are obligated to continue to make confessional statements as various heresies and errors arise to defend the truth. And finally, before we look at the second commandment, the second commandment mentioned here in 1 John 4. Finally, in this regard, I would point out, how is faithful preaching or a faithful translation 
of the scriptures into English any different than a faithful confession. Many who oppose the use of creeds in a church nevertheless still believe in preaching and believe in English translations of the scriptures, and yet both of them are equally subject to error and need to be tested by the infallible standard of God's word. If we will subject ourselves to preaching, or if we will use an English version rather than the original Greek and Hebrew, then we must still make those kinds of judgments all of the time. Is that faithful? The way that that is translated, is that faithful? Is what the pastor said faithful to the word of God? And so if we do not object to using those as means of grace, then how can we object to using confessions and creeds, which not simply one man but a multitude have agreed concerning. The second commandment mentioned here in 1 John 4.1 is this. Try the spirits, whether they are of God. Believe not every spirit. Secondly, try the spirits, whether they are of God. To the same effect is the word of the Apostle Paul, found in 1 Thessalonians 5.20 and 21, where he says, Despise not prophesying. In other words, despise not that which comes by revelation of the Holy Spirit. Prove all things. Hold fast to that which is good. Prove it. Analyze it. Consider carefully what is stated to be true. State it or, and examine it according to the word of God. Furthermore, I draw to your attention the commendation of the Lord Jesus Christ himself concerning the church of Ephesus in Revelation 2, verses 2 and 6, where the Lord commends this church in these terms. I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience and how thou canst not bear with them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars. And in verse 6, But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. They tried those who said they were apostles. They tried them, they tested them, and they found them to be liars. They did not hold to the doctrine found in the scripture. But note in contrast to that commendation, what the Lord Jesus Christ says to another of the churches in Revelation, to that of Thyatira in Revelation 2.20, how he condemns them rather for tolerating false teachers within the church. He says, notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee. Because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. You tolerate her. You don't test her. You don't examine her or what she's saying. You tolerate her. And in that case, that church receives Christ's very severe condemnation. Please note in regard to these commands found in 1 John chapter 4, 
These commands are not explicitly given to the church officers, though they do include church officers. They do not, however, exclude the individual Christian from his own responsibility and duty to examine what is said. All Christians alike, and for that matter, we could say non-Christians as well, but all Christians especially are bound by the first commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. They're also bound by the third commandment. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. They are therefore bound not, each individual, they are bound not to adopt, believe, or practice that which is false and contrary to the word of God. Which certainly implies that each Christian must exercise a discernment of what is to be believed and what is to be denied by means of these two things, the Spirit of God and the Word of God working together. That learned and godly Scottish Presbyterian minister, George Gillespie, who was a commissioner to the Westminster Assembly, has noted in his classic work, A dispute against English popish ceremonies. And I quote, The subordinate judgment which I call private is the judgment of discretion, whereby every Christian, for the certain information of his own mind and the satisfaction of his own conscience, may and ought to try and examine as well the decrees of councils as the doctrines of particular pastors, and insofar to receive and believe the same as he understands them to agree with the Scriptures. And I would simply note in this regard how many churches today that may be sound in certain truths, they may stand for certain truths for which we can commend them, However, they stand condemned before God in many ways because they have presumed to require Christians, for example, to attend worship services where the ordinances of God have been corrupted by the innovations of men. For example, replacing the inspired psalms with uninspired songs and compositions of men, or adding instruments to the ordinance of praise, or adding the celebration of holy days, to the worship of God. And then when Christians in such circumstances who have a conscience before God, a tender conscience, who will not submit their conscience to the ordinances and commandments of men, when they explain to such ministers, to elders in these churches, that they cannot attend these services, because of the corruptions in worship, because those corruptions are unlawful, because those corruptions are unnecessary, and because those corruptions cause offense to brethren. They are further subject to tyranny by being unlawfully censured by the courts of that church. This is a clear violation of these very commandments which God gives to us in 1 John 
4.1 that it is the duty to believe not every spirit and it is the duty to test whether a spirit is of God, whether a teacher is speaking the truth from God. Now, John, moving from the commandments, John gives the reason for these commands when he says, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. What is a false prophet? Well, in a very specific and narrow sense, a false prophet is one who claims to speak by the inspiration of God, but simply speaks rather his own mind. As in the case we find in Jeremiah 23, verses 16 and following, these words, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Hearken not unto the words of the prophets that prophesy unto you. They make you vain. They speak a vision of their own heart and not out of the mouth of the Lord. I have not sent these prophets, yet they ran. I have not spoken to them, yet they prophesied. I have heard what the prophets said. They prophesied lies in my name, saying, I have dreamed, I have dreamed. How long shall this be in the heart of the prophets that prophesy lies? Yea, they are prophets of the deceit of their own heart. Therefore, behold, I am against the prophets, saith the Lord, that steal my words, every one from his neighbor. Behold, I am against the prophets, saith the Lord, that use their tongues and say, it, and say he saith. In other words, thus saith the Lord. And so, very specifically, a false prophet is of that nature. One who speaks and says, I have received a divine revelation from God, but he has conjured up these things from his own imagination, from his own dreams, from his own visions. God has not indeed spoken to him. However, in a more general sense, a false prophet is one who by his false teaching leads God's people away, listen carefully, from the orthodox and biblical faith that is represented in the faithful creeds of the Reformed churches of the First and Second Reformations. One who would lead God's people away from those faithful creeds is yet a false prophet. Now, there are those, let me make a further distinction, listen carefully. There are those who do so in leading God's people away from the biblical truths that are found in these creeds and confessions, who do so by introducing damnable heresies which attack the very foundation of the faith. For example, the deity of Christ, the Trinity, salvation by grace, and on and on. There may be a few others that you would want to add to that. But there are also those who I would put into this category and our Reformed forefathers did as well. There are those who who would fall into this category of being false teachers, who do so not by introducing damnable heresies, but by introducing destructive heresies, which yet attack the biblical faith of our forefathers as represented in these faithful creeds and confessions. Not because our forefathers wrote them, but because, again, they're biblical, because they're conformable to the Word of God. And the Reformed churches in over a couple hundred years said, this is what we stand for as Christians. To veer from these standards is to veer from orthodoxy. 
Such a one may not wittingly do so. He may not wittingly say, I'm going to lead them away from the faith of their forefathers, the orthodox faith of the Reformed confessions and creeds. He may not say that, nor necessarily intend to do so. Such a one may be a Christian, and we're certainly not saying that, that those who fall into the camp of this introducing destructive heresies are all non-Christians. Not saying that at all. They may be very sincere in this regard. We're not saying that, that those churches that have such teachers are churches in no sense. We're not saying they're not a part of the visible church Catholic. We're not saying that they've destroyed all of the fundamentals of the faith. We're not saying we wouldn't recognize them to be a Christian church. But if they have veered from those standards, they are not a faithful Christian church. And their ministers are not faithful Christian ministers. And to that degree, they are false teachers in those areas. If Christians, dear ones, if Christians in these areas obey these first two commandments found in 1 John 4.1, let me say this also. If you follow these commandments, believe not every spirit, try the spirits, whether they are of God, if you practice that, you will not, and Christians will not be able to become members of such churches. And if they cannot become members of such churches, why would they attend such churches, even casually or occasionally? Why would they listen to, in a formal setting like that, why would they listen to the pastors and ministers of such churches? if they could not become members of those churches. You see, these two commandments teach us we must, in those occasions, as Proverbs, the wisest man on the earth, Solomon says, that we must depart. We must not give ear. We must not hear and listen to the teaching that causes to err. And that is what John says later on in this passage. He says that those who who listen to these errors are in one camp. Those who, who, however, listen to the truth, those who are following these commandments demonstrate and have assurance, have a, a, a kind of assurance that will, will pass through very difficult times in their life. They can, they can look to these types of things and, and have a certainty about their faith because they listen to those who proclaim the truth. They, they avoid and shun those who proclaim error. <clears throat> I'm drawing to a close, but I, I know that it's been long and it's warm in here. Uh, please... I, I have some very important things to say. It won't take long, but please give me your attention. There were false prophets in Israel of old. Remember that. 
We tend to think that we have so many views or so many uh, people running around with these various doctrines and things like this that we're maybe uh, unique. There were false prophets in the Old Testament, just like Jesus and the apostles said there were false prophets in the New Testament, just as there are false prophets or false teachers today. One of those examples, one of those classic examples, sometime I won't read the passage, but perhaps you'll want to look back at 1 Kings chapter 22, where the false prophets gather, Ahab, Jehoshaphat, gathered together an alliance and and uh, uh, the righteous king, Jehoshaphat, says, uh, before I form this alliance to go, to go to war with you, I want some word from the Lord. Gather the prophets together. And all the prophets come together and they say, yeah, go on out. God will give you success in what you endeavor. The Lord will be with you. Jehovah will be with you. False prophets. I think Jehoshaphat sensed something was not right here. He says, isn't there another isn't there another prophet uh, that we can consult? And so they, they call Micaiah. Micaiah comes to the witness stand. Ahab says, I really don't like this guy because he really never prophesies anything that uh, is pleasing to me. Everything he seems to prophesy is, you know, kind of bad. Uh, it makes me look bad. I don't like to do it. You know, this type of thing. Uh, and, uh, but Jehoshaphat says, call him. And Micaiah comes and he declares the truth. And he says, if you return, if you return safely back from this battle, Ahab, God has not spoken to me. You see, there are false prophets. The false prophets far outnumbered. As you read through the scriptures, there always appears to be more false prophets than there are those who are proclaiming the truth. They always seem to be outnumbered. Think about Elijah and, and the 450 prophets of Baal, one, one measly little prophet. They always seem to be outnumbered. Jesus says in Matthew 24, 24, he says concerning false teachers, he said they're going to come. He prophesied. Be aware. But he says that these False teachers and false prophets that are bringing damnable heresies will not be able to, to deceive the elect. They will not be able to deceive and bring destruction, damnation to the elect. In Acts chapter 20, Paul was speaking to the elders of Ephesus at Miletus there. And he said, out of your midst will come certain ones, false teachers, who will subvert the truth and mislead some from the flock. Out of your midst. In 1 Timothy 4.1, the Apostle Paul says, In the last days, there will be troublous times. There will be seducing spirits that come and mislead those from the truth. We should expect that to happen. And so if there are, we should not have the attitude, how could we be right if we are in the minority? Has it not always been that way? I ask you, has it not always been the case? Don't look at those types of things to determine the truth. Look to the Word of God. Look to the Spirit of God. That's how we determine the truth. Well, how do you recognize false teachers? Whether they 
fall into the category of bringing damnable heresies or, or what we would simply call destructive heresies? Well, Jesus says you'll know them by their fruits. And that is by their teaching and by their life, by their faith and by their practice. Even in Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse 1, in the Old Testament, the Lord says, when there comes a prophet and what he predicts comes true. I'm going to turn there because I want to be sure that I have this exactly as it should be. Deuteronomy 13, verse 1. And I'll read it. If there arise among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams and giveth thee a sign or a wonder and the sign or the wonder come to pass whereof he spake unto thee saying let us... Okay, so stop there. So what he says comes true. What he prophesies, the wonder he does, it, it, it comes true. It happens. But, goes on to say, but he says this, let us go after other gods which thou hast not known and let us serve them Thou shalt not hearken unto the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God proveth you. He's testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Are you going to simply look at the sign or are you going to test and evaluate the teaching? What is he saying? And so we see, by their fruits you shall know them. By their teaching, as Deuteronomy 13.1 says, and even by their life, by the test that we find in 1 John, a love for holiness, a love for the brethren, and a love for the truth. By their life as well. And finally, let me just simply say this, or ask this question. Where do you begin Seems like maybe a, a big task. Where do you begin in learning to test teachers? Where do you begin? Let me just give you very, just run through these very quickly. Six ways, six ways to test teachers. You begin, first of all, by fearing the Lord, your God. Psalm 25:14 says, The secret of the Lord is with them that fear him, and he will show them his covenant. Fearing the Lord your God. Being broken and contrite and trembling before his word. Secondly, you must desire to do his will. You must desire to do his will. In John 7.17, 7, which we read even this Lord's Day earlier, the Lord Jesus was answering charges that were being brought against him by the, the Jewish religious leaders of that time. And he says, If any man will do his will, the will of God, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. Notice, he doesn't say, If any man will know his will, he shall know of the doctrine. If any man will do his will. You see, if you're not willing to do the will of God, why should God reveal to you his will concerning a doctrine, whether it's from God or whether it's from man? If you're not willing to put your life on the line, to put your prestige, 
your social status with family, friends, associates, whatever, if you're not willing to do that, if you're not willing to do His will, then there's no sense in asking Him to reveal His will because the Lord adds light as we do obey Him. As we do His will in this area, God will add light and understanding down the path. But are you willing to do His will? Secondly, then you'll be able to learn how to test teachers and what they say. Thirdly, you must exercise yourself according to Acts 24.16. This is the words of the Apostle Paul. You must exercise yourself to always have a conscience free of offense toward God and toward man. You must seek to have a pure conscience that it's not wounded and offended and that you're not walking in that wound and offense. That when you sin against the Lord God, you go to Him immediately. You don't continue to go on days without confessing sin and repenting. You repair to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you avoid offense toward God and man. Fourthly, from Proverbs 3.5, you must not lean on your own understanding. You must not lean on your own understanding. You must trust in the Lord your God and His Word. Don't trust your own understanding. Don't trust your own thoughts. Lean on Him. Fifthly, if you're going to be able to test teachers, you must know the Scriptures. You must know them. 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be perfect, may be mature, may be complete in all good deeds and works. And so, if you're going to evaluate the fruit, you must know what the fruit looks like, the real thing looks like. And lastly, you must be absolutely dependent upon the Holy Spirit of God as the only one who can lead you into truth. You see, this is not a mere intellectual exercise. It is not a question of who is the smartest guy in the church, who is the smartest guy, in other words, having the highest IQ. That's not the issue. The issue is one of submission to the Holy Spirit, recognizing that it is only the Lord God. These are spiritual truths, spiritually discerned. It is only through the Holy Spirit and spending time with Him, enjoying Him, calling out to Him to give you wisdom and understanding, knowing your God, that He will then, as He says, make known His secret unto you. And so, dear ones, We'll continue this series from this text next Lord's Day, but take to heart the Word of God today. Believe not every spirit, but test the spirits that they be of God. Please stand with me in prayer. Our faithful Father, we come to Thee this day 
acknowledging, Lord, that we have sought our own ways. As ministers, as teachers, we have gone our own paths. We have allowed our own thoughts to guide us, times ignorantly. But even at times, Lord, because we wanted to believe something, because it was comfortable to us, because we didn't like the consequences of the other view, even though it was true, Lord, have mercy upon us and turn us from our wicked and evil ways. Give to us, Lord, the grace to follow Thee in all of Thy paths of righteousness and truth. That, Lord, we would love the truth with all of our heart. And that we would despise error. That we would love holiness and righteousness. That we would love the beauty of the Lord that we would love the brethren. Oh God, we see how defective we are when we seriously examine our lives in these areas and we yearn to grow into greater conformity unto these truths. We pray, Father, that Thou would, would cause us to stir up the grace that's within us. Cause Thy Spirit to be effectual and bringing forth these fruit in our life. Oh Lord, we, we do pray that Thou would keep us as a congregation free from error. That Lord, we would love the old paths. That we would not move the ancient landmarks of our forefathers. That we would walk according to all of their biblical Landmarks and walk in their footsteps as they follow Christ. We ask our God that Thou would use these truths to stir us up and to prepare us for more faithful service. And we ask all of these things in the name of Christ. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, 
God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.